Heavenly Father, we stand in your presence, knowing that your soon return is going to bring a change to this world that we could never imagine. But by that grace, Lord, of the life that we have right now, may we live it fully in your hands. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I want to make sure that everybody has a copy of the worship guide, and so if you haven't got a copy of the worship guide, you just put your hands up right now, and we'll make sure that a member of our diaconate team will get that out to you, but you'll need a, a worship guide today. Um, some of you are going to look inside this worship guide and find it's a little bit thicker than normal. That's because some of you uh, are desperate to take quizzes. And so we included a quiz for you. I know that as you open it up, you think, I can't stop right now. I need to answer all these questions. The multiple choices driving me insane. Well, feel free. Go ahead and, uh, and don't look down below. Some of you will actually defy these things and you will look at the answers and say, I, I didn't mean to look at the answers. Uh, it was just so large. I just wish it was smaller or maybe on the other side. And so you will have to repent of your ways before you even take the survey. But uh, I thought that the Galatians chapters 1 and 2 would be a little good quiz for us to be able to do at some point and just check whether you're listening and check whether you, well, you've, you've learned something new. But more importantly inside there's that there's this little tearaway uh, connected to BBS, our Vacation Bible School. As we sang these songs, as we read the scriptures, and I know we've talked about it here and we've encouraged you to volunteer and connect, I want to encourage you to do the same by tearing this off, filling it in, uh, contacting us, reaching out to us and saying, yes, I actually want to get involved in VBS. And you can see Daniel at the back there if you want to volunteer. You can see the other team members as well and uh, make sure that you sign your kids up as quick as you can for, uh, for the VBS. But our questions for uh, our service today are all inside here. It's on the back page under the recalibrate questions. And so we will go through those questions in the service today. And I hope that you will be blessed by that and challenged by it as we go into Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Here's a little quick note, a side note. Tomorrow the finance committee is going to meet. And they are going to be working through the budget for next year, preparing a proposal to bring to the vision board and then eventually to a, a business meeting here as well at the church. I know that some of you have uh, received your tax returns and some of you are thinking what to do with that, perplexing. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to uh, remember your church offering and help us with the church offering budget and uh, be able to give to support that as well. Um, and so if you can do that, that'd be phenomenal and uh, we will be blessed for that as well. But if you're planning to, let Tom know or myself or Dina know today because that will affect what we're going to be doing tomorrow with the budget. Galatians chapters 1 and 2. A couple of ministers have read it. You heard Kevin really read it interpretively and bring out the juices inside that chapters there. How many of you had a chance to read it every single day this week? You're like, I didn't know he meant every day. I thought he meant once. Okay, how many of you read it just once this week? Look at that. That's good. This is good. Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Really quite powerful chapters. Uh, a really interesting letter because it's not a normal letter like the other letters in the New Testament that are full of lovely thoughts and encouraging words about people and, and confronting some issues but really pulling them. And this one here, it's kind of angry and agitated. He's kind of got something inside him that Paul really wants to talk about and he's, he's coming to this and he's writing this letter rather abruptly. But we're going to deal with just two chapters today where we talk about the history and authority. Next week we're going to talk about chapters three and four and we're going to look at how we are saved and then five and six, the final chapters, we're going to look at what that looks like. What's an ethical life? 
look like when you are saved and you are following Christ and what does that look like and we will challenge that. But Paul holds nothing back when he goes into this letter. He is just straight out there. He, he starts to talk about these troublemakers that I will refer to as the others. He's accusing these others because these others have come to Paul and said, Paul, you are preaching Jesus full stop, all full stop. I kid you not, I did not make this up. That's what they're accusing him. <laughs> You're thinking, ah, oh, he just weaved that in there. That wasn't in the text. It is. This is what the issue is. He says, you are preaching Christ and Christ alone, and that is unacceptable because it is Christ the Messiah and circumcision. Or it is Christ the Messiah and something else in order to be saved. And so there's this huge tension inside there. So question number one that you have in your uh, recalibrate questions here for today, which you can take into a Bible study class or you can do over lunch and talk with your friends. How do we create healthy unity? How do we create healthy unity? And there's no time for Paul to waste on this because he's gonna go straight to this question. He wants to answer this question. I want the church to be unified, but I want you to know it's not about me, Paul. It's not about my ego. It's not about me with my authority because you know I'm not part of the original 12. It's nothing to do with that. It's that the gospel is being destroyed because after all, this is the birth of the church. This is the beginning of Christianity that we are gonna be able to say we have one God and we have one message and we have two people two groups. That doesn't work. It's, it's one group of people. And except, except for them, they're like, no, there are the others, and then there are these. There are the Jews who are Christians, and then there are the Gentiles that are Christians. And he's saying, this doesn't work out. We've got to make sure it's right. I remember once I did, a, I did a couple of church plants, and this one particular church plant that we were engaged in, I sat down with the ministerial team, the senior pastor from the mother church. And the senior pastor said, look, You've got to keep the DNA of the church in whatever you create. This is important, the DNA. And I agree, the DNA has to stay complete inside there. You can have tons of diversity. You can have things look entirely different as long as that DNA stays solid inside this church plant. In other words, you can have unity inside diversity, but it doesn't have to be everybody looking exactly the same. So chapter one, verse one, Paul begins here straight away. Paul, an apostle, not from any human sources, he says he gets his message direct from Jesus and the Father. He's high on Christology. He's high on the idea that he wants you to know that Jesus Christ is God and he's equal to the Father. And he gets this message directly from God, not from a human being. So what he's about to tell you is pretty intense. And he says, this is high important to me and I belong to this community of brothers here or brothers and sisters who are with me who all agree that the gospel is really important. So buckle your seatbelts up as we dive into this a little bit deeper now because then he says these two beautiful words, words that are gonna resonate in everything that he says from this point on. We sang about it, we heard a children's story with, with our elder Matt talking about it to the kids, grace and peace. And grace for Paul, and if you know anything about Paul, this guy was a, a First Testament scholar. He, understand the, he understood the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah and the Pentateuch. He understood the writings and the wisdom. This guy understands what the word grace is. 
comes from him, from the word has said in the back of Exodus, where he talks about that God's love is relentlessly forever loving you. And as you have grace with a God who is loving you forever, there is time to make the changes possible. You have the time and the power to transform your life, and that's what grace exists. So he says, grace exists for you so that you may be transformed. And peace is a result of that grace. Because when you are transformed by God, when you are changed by God, you're a different person. And you live a different life. And when you live that different life, you have peace and you have joy. And this thing, Paul says, this is what it comes down to, is grace and peace. In verse four here, it's the very, one of the earliest statements where it tells us, in fact, in chapter one, verse four, which by the way, you have your pew Bibles. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can pull those out. We're on page 671 inside there, Galatians chapter one. And you can read with us the text inside there, and you can write inside and take it with you. But chapter one, verse four, it's the first time in the New Testament, in the Second Testament here, where he kind of gives you a reason why Christ died in a particular way, saying he delivers us and he, from our sins and Christ died for us. And so he's doing this. And then he gets to chapter one, verse six, and he says, I'm astonished. Now, when you hear the word astonished, what you normally would think of is like, I was astonished, I was shocked, I, I saw something. It was like, oh, it was a bright light. It was like, that was a weird polar bear in the middle of Colorado, it made no sense to me. I was astonished when I saw this. But for him, that's not what he's trying to say inside that word. That word has been mistranslated a little bit. It's more that he's angry and he's agitated and he's ticked off and he's like, I can't believe that you guys are doing this, that you are destroying the DNA, the essence of what God has called us to because of the foreskin on the tip of the penis. And I'm like, I'm blown away, really? That little piece of skin has caused this to happen? We're gonna start our nominating committee uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we're gonna start collecting names and, and I need you to, to keep this in the back of your head. If you don't know what a nominating committee is, let me just give you a quick summary. It's, it's a great committee. Everybody wants to be a member um, because you, you'll spend every week for the rest of your life meeting discussing, discussing who should take different leadership roles in the church. So we need you to think about it this week so that over the next two Sabbaths, you can write inside your Connect card or reach out to the elders or pastors and say, this is who we would like to see as members of the committee. So you're thinking, ah, oh, not me. But Laura, she should be on the nominating committee. And then Laura will say no. And so that's what you've got to do. You've got to think of as many names as you can and, and put them forward. But just imagine, just imagine as this nominating committee was sitting down and they're going through all the list of all the ministries and they came along to the committee, the, the ministry that they're going to start. And it's called the circumcision ministry. You know? And they're like, who could be the leader for that? Oh, what a great job. And your job, just in case you're not sure of this, is this. As people come to church, Sabbath morning, Saturday morning, and you welcome them, the greeters welcome them, and they say, you see that, that little cupboard over there uh, where we have refreshments inside there? It's been turned into the circumcision room. And, it, and I don't know if you have the tackle, but if you do, I'd like you to go inside that room and meet one of our ministry leaders. And then you go inside this room there, and they say, could you drop your trousers? and we're gonna check if you're circumcised. And if you are, welcome! <laughs> and if you're not, we can take care of that. 
And so this is kind of like, I mean, I don't know anybody who wants to join that kind of ministry, but you know, some people are like, whoa, whoa, that's a little bit too far. But this is what they were doing. They were saying they've created an extra barrier for people to be able to say, I want to be a follower of Christ. And we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, we may call it not circumcision today, but we may call it all sorts of other things that we have, all sorts of other ideas that we have floating through our heads where you're thinking, man, I really want to be a follower of Christ, but so many things I need to change before I become a follower of Christ. So many things that I need to do before I know that I am saved because we battle in our souls all the time with the idea that maybe there's something I'm supposed to do to be saved first of all. And what we don't understand is that what you do is always supposed to be a response to what God has done in you because it is in Christ alone living in you that you're transformed. And Paul is saying this is just unacceptable. We need you to understand how serious this is. Circumcision has been something that's happened for many, many years, and I understand it. In fact, we were discussing it on Tuesday at our Bible study. I don't know if, you've, if any of you are free around lunchtime. Every Tuesday, we meet inside the community room here, and we're going through the book of Genesis, and so if you're welcome to come and join us, Jackie Hayes, she makes the most delightful sandwiches, and Jeanette Bell makes the most incredible desserts, and, and we enjoy all that. So we have literal food, and we have the Word of God as well, blessing spiritual food as well. And we, We're going through Genesis, and we were in the chapter where, um, where there was these guys who had done some bad stuff, and the sons of Jacob were really upset about this and said, well, you know what, you need to be circumcised. And so the guy's like, all right, lined up the entire village, circumcised all these guys. Day three, they're like, oh, I'm in so much pain. And then they all go out there and kill them. You can read the story for yourself because it's, it's a lot more fun if you read the story because there's a lot more stuff inside there and a lot more complexity inside it. But circumcision was something they had done for thousands of years. In fact, they knew that even the Egyptians and the other Arab countries, they all were all part of this whole, right, they understood part of this thing. It was like a, an identifier. And I guess they must have had a lot of showers together where everybody saw each other all the time so they could tell straight away, that's, uh, that's, your, that's your sign. I know it's by a haircut. I know who you are and we're, we're all together here. But here now, here now, Paul growing up in this heritage, understanding this identity mark, comes along and says, this is not what it's about. But they accuse him and say, oh, Paul, you're, you're watering it down. You're making the gospel too easy. And he says, it's Jesus all full stop. And they say, it's Jesus and circumcision. And he says, no, it's faith in Jesus. And they said, no, it's Jesus and your works that you've really got to do. And he says, no, it's grace. And he says, no, it's really your works. And they're battling back and forth between what they believe it's supposed to be and what God is trying to say through them. So you may say to Paul, 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 can't you just combine it? Can't you just, you know, build a community? I mean, after all, you're all about unity. You're all about grace and having everybody to come together. I mean, what is a big deal? Just line them up and circumcise them all. Come on, it's not that difficult. Takes a few days, recovery, everybody's fine. Lasts a lifetime, you know? It's good for them. And it's like, no, this is more important to me for you to understand that you cannot dilute the DNA of the gospel. In its essence, this is about salvation. It's about life and death. And then he tells them in verse 10 here, 
For now, I'm now seeking the approval of man, of God, or trying to please man. If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, look, you remember what I was like when I followed the ways of the works? When I did that kind of stuff? I was crazy. You understand this. And so he gives them his autobiography. And there's three things I need you to know about this before you dive into, into this autobiography. First of all, is that number one is that he is answering the charge against them, right? So they're accusing him of watering down faith, making it too easy. You know, you really want, you want faith to be hard. You want, you want God to be complex, so complex that to follow him would be impossible. So you create all these hurdles, and we'd like this. But he's answering this charge. He says he's building everybody towards chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20 is phenomenal. I posted it this week because it's just great because he says, I'm co-crucified with Christ there. And then he says this, we're family. And because we're family, we should be together. So he walks on this really tough line. It's a really, it's a high wire, very delicate for him. If he leads over to the left side, just slightly to the left side, he could fall over because he's like, this is just too new for me to handle. If he leans over to the right side, they're just like, well, you're building on what we have, but I'm just not comfortable with it. And this is a tension that we have in church all the time whenever change takes place. We're constantly trying to make sure that when we make decisions, the decisions are based on the DNA of the church, and the DNA is the gospel. So when we make decisions, honestly, when we as pastors and elders and vision board, we're making decisions, one of the things that's deep inside our decision process is, is this what God has called us to? Not is this just matching what we've written down, but is this what God has called us to? Are we creating space and a place where people can connect with God? Because that's what we're about. We've got to create space and a place for people to connect with God. Everything we do, we have to think of, is it a, a, an avenue that somebody can do this inside here? When we united our worship services together uh, over a year and a bit ago, um, there was a lot of turmoil for people, right? And people still struggle a little bit with what happens here on Sabbath morning because they're like, well, what I really want is you know, louder or quieter or darker or brighter or I'd like a different color font. You know, if it could be red instead of white. And people struggle with all this kind of stuff. We want to have children's story and a children's story. We want this and that, offering and not. And so there's tensions all the time. And truth is this. What we have on Sabbath morning and what we encourage you to come and join us here every single Sabbath is a family worship. And family worship is good because it means the whole family's together. But as you know, because you all belong in some shape or form to family, family's messy. You know, kids, when they eat and they're small, they kind of like eat it a little bit and then they throw it across the room and they splatter it on their face. And, and you're like, seriously, could you just not keep it in your mouth? I mean, does it have to be like all over the tray and you put these pieces top down to protect your house and then after a year you give up? And you're like, ah, just go for it. <laughs> I'll do it with you and we'll just make a mess. And you're constantly trying all the time to connect family because you do things for family. And family, you understand each other. You get upset with each other a little bit, but you, you make things good for family. You know, my, if my family were all identical, all right, so if Becky, myself, Josh, and Jonah were all identical, we would probably be hiking every day. Do you know how insane that is? I mean, we would be out, they'd be like, every morning we'd wake up and say, well, it's four o'clock, let's go to another mountain. <laughs> and so we'll do a mountain, and then we'll come down, and then we'll go to work every day. But because we're family, we don't. 
I'm so happy. I get to sleep in until five. It's great. You know, so with family, you know, you, you, you will do things that are different for each other. I mean, another example, my family, I love to watch movies. My wife loves to fall asleep during movies. She says, I, I could read a book, it'd be much better than this. And so sometimes, though, occasionally, she will grace us with her presence. And she will join us, and we'll watch a movie together. Well, we'll watch the movie, and she'll say at the end, so what was that? As she wakes up from the whole thing, I mean, this, but we're family, so we do this together, right? We stay together, we, we do this. Even what we eat as a family, there are times when we eat food that was just like, that's okay as a family. If I was by myself, oh, it would be lamb. But as a family, we're vegan, it's fine, it's okay. <laughs> I can deal with that. I can deal with the change. And that's what we do. We adjust things as a family. And I think in worship sometimes we have to be understanding that we are bringing everything together. We bring all the worship styles together. We bring everything together because we are family. But in response to that, we also know that there are moments that you connect. And you connect in a different way. And so we have those individual things. You know, Myself, I will go off with my brothers and spend a couple of days every year with four or five of these guys and we'll just spend, and my wife will, will mock me about it. Oh yes, go do, go do your food thing. Go do your, <laughs> go do whatever you're gonna go do. And so, but I need that time. I need the two days of just like sitting down and just enjoying time and fellowship and conversation about stuff that guys talk about for two days solid, which is just not, time's not enough to cover that time. And then we come back and we're family. So we're going to do the same with worship here as well. Once a quarter, we're going to start doing a new worship service in the afternoons after church. You can stay for Sabbath morning. You're welcome to stay. And we're going to have a worship service here that you probably do need to think about bringing earplugs to. Some of you are like, oh, what, what? Yes, because we actually do have the ability to play a little bit different. And then we're going to have another service where we encourage you to come along, an even song service where we're going to have the organ played, and we're going to have beautiful traditional hymns sung, and we're going to just enjoy connecting to God in different ways. And we've got to do this because there is something beautiful about us being a family, understanding that we all as family have different needs. But the thing that holds us all together, Sabbath morning, every single week, is the DNA of the gospel, that we are in Christ all together. Well, Paul understood this, and he really wants us to understand the gospel, and so he says, look, the gospel is what everything's about, and that's why I'm agitated and irritated, because this is important for you not to forget this. And I've said this before, that the gospel term has been understood at this time, Roman times, Paul's time, it was what the good news that would come out, a Roman emperor would be chosen, and the heralds would drive through town, and they would say, good news, good news, so-and-so is now in power. And some people found that good news, and some people didn't find that a good news, and they suffered through it, and they enjoyed it, but it was that there was a new emperor who was in charge of the universe that you know of. The whole world was changed. Well, when Jesus comes along and says, I am the good news, I am the gospel, he's saying the whole world has changed. There is a good news that you need to be aware of. And he gets this, and Paul gets this, and you've got you to gotta understand that Paul is writing always from his First Testament experience. So he's writing the Second Testament. We're blessed with that. But he pulls everything from there. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, page 411. Isaiah chapter 40. And inside Isaiah, this is a phenomenal section. Page 411, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. 
And this is what Isaiah the prophet says. Remember, we, we talked about this when we did uh, the Prophets and Kings series, and we talked about the children of Israel. When they're over here, they're in exile. Well, Isaiah understands this. He's understanding that they're in exile. And he says this, look, get you up to a high mountain, chapter 40, verse 9. O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, God is going to come back and you will get out of exile. The good news is that your exile will end, that God will come back, the Messiah is on his way. Isaiah 52, verse seven, page 420, just turn over a couple more pages. And, and understand this, that Paul is always pulling the entire story, right? He's always pulling the entire thread inside scripture. So as we go through scripture, you'll understand he weaves it all through because he's never picking just one verse on its own here. Isaiah chapter 52, verse seven. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We sing songs about this. The feet of him who brings good news. That the God says he will publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And we sing, our God reigns. Because we're overwhelmed by the joy that the good news is coming through this. And here's the thing. If you pull the thread through, and it pulls a mention right now, What's the next chapter after 52? 53, I know that was, you're like, is it a trick question? It's not, 53, and chapter 53 for us, we understand is the chapter about the Messiah. He says the good news is coming through and it is lived through the Messiah himself and it's inside chapter 53 that he articulates this beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ was. And so Paul is pulling us all the time because what Paul did is he remapped the entire First Testament through the DNA of the gospel. People have misunderstood things. They read all the scriptures, they thought they got it, and Paul said, no, you don't understand. You've misunderstood what's going on inside here. Back in Galatians, we'll come back to Isaiah in a bit, but back in Galatians chapter one, verse 13 down here, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Now when you think of Judaism, you think of it as a religion, kind of like Hinduism and Buddhism and, and Isthmus, which is the, the reference for Christianity, because the Germans in the 19th century said, we've got all these systems, and we need to be able to categorize them as religions. And so they said, this is the ism, this is the Hinduism and Buddhism, and Christianity was put inside as one of these kind of ideas, these systems of religions. But the difference is, is that at the time, in, back in Paul's day, Judaism was not just a religion, it was an activity. Now, if Christianity was just a religion, you'd actually leave after a while. But if Christianity was an activity, it's part of what you do and who you are, you, know, you, you just can't leave it. You just are part of it because it's part of your DNA. Well, in the Greek times, they understood this. In Roman times, they understood this. Hellenism was an idea philosophy that they, they said, well, if, I'm a, if I'm part of the Hellenistic philosophy, my job is to actually convince other people, other people to become Greeks like us, to become Hellenistic. If I'm a Jude, a, a Judaism here inside here, I'm, my job is to actually is to be able to encourage them to become Jews. Now, if you take this formula and you just have, say, well, my role is my activity is to help people to become Jews, and you add a little sprinkling, just a little sprinkling of cayenne pepper called zeal. And then you take a little bit of like black pepper, a little bit of black pepper, and you mix it inside with the cayenne pepper. That black pepper maybe is like Elijah, just in one section. 
what you create is the concoction of Paul, who was Saul, where he then takes the OTT, the level above. He says, well, not only am I going to convince you to become a Jew, but if you don't, I'm taking you straight to prison. Right? Because you have all the cayenne pepper and all the black pepper mixed up inside your food. It was good until you made it too spicy and too hot and too dangerous for them to handle. And then you take it to the level where it becomes kind of crazy. And Christianity, by the way, did the same thing in the Dark Ages. Well, be a Christian or we'll kill you. Today, there are other religions that do exactly the same thing. Follow us or we'll kill you. What we have to be able to do is go back to the DNA of what the gospel story is. And we are supposed to be an activity. We are supposed to be able to say, hey, go forward. And he understands this because Paul was all of this place here until he had the road to Damascus experience. And at that moment, when he experienced grace, grace that says, God is loyal to you, he was able to be transformed entirely. And at the end of this, this section, chapter one here, it tells you that Paul says, I didn't go see the apostles. I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't talk to anyone. I went to Arabia. Of all the places, that's where he decided to go. Because what he's gonna start doing now is connecting dots for you again. He's gonna pull in all that he understands from the First Testament to his life. You ever read the Bible, you open it up and you're reading the Bible and you're like, wow, that text spoke to me, right? And when that text speaks to you, that becomes part of who you are because you're like, God has spoken to me at this point. Paul did the same thing. Turn with me back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, verse one, page 417, Isaiah 49, verse one. And we know that this context of this passage, as in scripture, has application to life right there. Isaiah 49 is also talking about the servant of the Lord, is talking about Jesus at some point in the future. But Paul, when he reads this, he says, oh, and he quotes it inside Galatians, right? He says this, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Can you see Saul doing that on the road to Damascus when he was confronted by Jesus? Like, you called me by my name. You've called me all this time. And then you, you scroll in scripture and say, God, what does it mean? As he's out in Arabia wrestling through the scripture, he gets down to verse four and he says, but I said, I have labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing in vanity. I have gone and I have attacked people and persecuted them and this was not right. I wasted all my time because he was so proud of being the greatest. He was really young and powerful because people looked at him and said, man, you're like, you're like Elijah. And he said, yeah, I know, I wanna be like Elijah. Not like the whole Elijah, just little portions of Elijah. The moments when Elijah says, bring fire down, fire comes down, get, get the, the whole thing sorted. I want that kind of power and I want that segment of Elijah because that's his hero. That's who he read about. That's who he knew, that one day Elijah would come back and he thought, maybe I'm that Elijah. Not understanding this, he's looking at this stuff all the time saying to himself, I really wanna comprehend what it is that I'm supposed to do. And so here, not only does he give references to his scriptural understanding, but this is what I believe, and I'm suggesting this because there's no real evidence for this. But just don't say, what? He preached it like it was truth. Well, I believe it. 
I believe it, and here's what I believe. Paul goes to Arabia, and Arabia is where Sinai is, and Sinai is where Moses went to, and Sinai is also the place nearby where there's the cave that Moses went and talked to God, and it's the same cave that Elijah went and talked to God. And I believe that if I were Paul, and I had grown up with these stories of great men who had given their lives to God, and realized that I had misled my entire life doing exactly the opposite of what God has called me to, but I found this text in Isaiah, I'd actually go back and I'd go to the cave and say, God, help me understand what I'm supposed to do. And that's why Paul says he did not talk to anyone. He didn't talk to the apostles. He didn't talk to James and Peter and the other guys. He didn't talk to his friends. He went to Arabia. And I would suggest that he went there because he went to the cave. But you've got to turn with me to 1 Kings 19 because this is part of the, the wow factor. When I read this, I was like, what? I can't believe this. So here, look at this. 1 Kings chapter 19. You know when you're, you're reading scripture, my joy is that I'm sitting in my office and I'm reading through scripture and I'm preparing the, the message for the week and suddenly I find like a great nugget of gold and I'm like, yes! And I want to do a dance. Like, I mean, I really like a crazy cool dance, but I can't dance. And so I'm like, I'm just excited, <laughs> just sitting in the chair, like, this is so good. So I can't wait to tell you on Sabbath. So here it is, First Kings chapter 19. This is the great story where Elijah's confronted. We did this when we looked at prophets and kings. And remember, we talked about this passage, and we said, here is Elijah, he's on Mount Carmel, had the great experience, fire came down, and then he's, Jezebel comes and attacks him and says, I'm going to get you, I'm going to kill you, and he runs for his life, demolished and crushed, and he says, he goes back to the cave that Moses went and heard God's voice and says, God, come and speak to me. And God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? I didn't invite you to the cave. And he's like, da, 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 da. what are you doing here, Elijah? I didn't invite you to the cave. And in the silence, and in the silence, he understands that the world has changed. And God's going to talk to him in a different way. But at the end of the whole story here, in verse 15, of chapter 19, it says this, and the Lord said to him, this is Elijah, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Heziel to be king over Syria. Go back to Galatians chapter one. It says here in verse 17, no, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go see the apostles. I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. God sent him to Damascus. He's like, just like Elijah, I went up there to try and God said, go back to Damascus. And I think that's when he went there, that's when he actually preached about the gospel and that's when they said, hey, we gotta get you out of this city because people are scared of you. And that great children's story that we tell our kids about where they took Paul and put him in the basket and lowered him down over the wall and he escaped like some kind of ninja at nighttime on a black ops mission and that's what he did, he got away and that's what he did at this point. He went back to Damascus. So I'm saying that these echoes, these allusions in Scripture, are to tell you that something miraculous has taken place in Paul's life. It's what's driving him. It's why he's angry and agitated, because he's had an encounter with God that cannot be shaken. It can't be moved from this. He's like, and then he goes to Damascus, and he confronts them, and he connects these dots so beautifully that for this moment, we are now saying, wow, indeed, he is transformed by grace. Because everyone, believe me, everyone was scared of Paul. Acts chapter 9, 26 says this. When they saw Paul coming, they were like, dude, man, we better run. That guy's not Paul. 
That's definitely Saul. I'm telling you, this is just a trap. He's pretending he's got like honey. And he's saying, come, come. It's sticky. We will not get away. He's going to kill you. And they were running for their lives. So then he goes and sees Peter. It says this in the chapter one. Goes and sees Peter, sends 15 days with him. And he mentions James. This is not James, the same James, Peter, James, and John, who went up on the Mount Transfiguration. This James is the brother of Jesus. This James is the one who actually didn't follow Jesus till after the cross, until Jesus appeared to him with the other 120 and convinced him. This James has now been adopted as one of the apostles, effectively. So Paul says, well, you know, look at James. You like him. He's part of the crew. He's accepted, so I'm going to come here, and I'd like to be accepted. And he says this in front of James, who's an authority, in front of Peter, who's an authority. I'm not lying to you. I'm telling you the truth. I believe in Jesus. This is the gospel. He appeared to me. He told me the gospel. I didn't hear it from anyone else. I am explaining it to you, and he swore this oath. Which brings us to question number two. How do we keep our faith fresh? And I'm going to fly through this because our time is running out here, but so much great stuff inside chapters one and two here. But listen to this. When I was a youth pastor years and years ago, about 4,000 decades, um, I remember I was calling one of my kids. uh, So I was calling her. She was at school. And and I heard her kind of like open the phone. And she said, hello. And I said, hey, this is Pastor Jay. And, And she's like, hang on. And then I heard her running like, like, like a lion, running, 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 scuttling around. I heard her go inside the room, door smashing, closing people. And I'm like, I'm just on the phone, just waiting to talk to her. And eventually, I hear this final door close. And I guess she's like catching her breath. And she's sitting down. And she's like, yeah, Pastor Jay, what is it? I'm like, why are you whispering? No reason. Where are you? Toilet. Why are you in the toilet? <laughs> Because nobody at her school knew that she was a Christian. Nobody knew. And she didn't want to tell her friends that her pastor was calling her on the phone. So she was hiding in the toilet to talk to me. I was like, that's weird. (laughs) Of all the places you could have hidden, that's weird. But here's the thing. She lived what we would refer to as a dualistic life. She lived one life at school and one life at home and church. And I would postulate that you, my friends, probably do the same thing. You live one life at work, or a university or school, and one life at home and church. Do your friends all know, truly, the DNA of the gospel inside you? Are you just like, I'm blessed to be at church? Laura and I were just talking about this this morning about how much of a blessing it is to come to church. And she gave me this great illustration I'm going to share with you. She said, you know, when you get, you get to the airport and you're worried about everything, that you, did you pack everything? And once you get through TSA, which takes about a day, uh, once you get through TSA and you get to the, to the airport lounge, you're standing there and you're like, all right, I'm here. I can't go back now. I might as well just enjoy the four-hour wait now for the delayed flight by United. I mean, I might as well, you know. And you just, you just you embrace that moment. And when we come to church, we're just like, all right, put it all away. I'm going to embrace that moment. I'm just with God right now, and I'm just happy to be able to enjoy this. And Paul says, this is so important. You've got to be consistent about who you are and be appreciative of the blessings that you have between those two things inside there. And we do have that. We're constantly capable of sharing good news about who we are with other people about things that we like. 
last night at, uh, at an, uh, a house that we were at and, and uh, I was talking to these guys and they were just talking non-stop about the cycling and mountain biking and climbing and all sorts of stuff. They have no problem sharing things that are good for them, cars that they know, RVs you should buy or not buy, but the truth is this, can we say the same about the gospel? Do we keep our faith, our faith fresh about the gospel? Here in this chapter, he brings Titus up, and, and he brings Titus in because he wants to tell you, look, once you're convinced about the gospel, you can adjust things, okay? So Paul brings Titus along. Titus is not circumcised. He says to him, this guy is a follower of Christ, and he will not get circumcised. A few years go by, Acts chapter 15 takes place, they have a big council, they meet together, they discuss as leaders of the church and say, circumcision is no longer required, we're going to say you're just saved by Christ alone, everything's fine, and then after that council, Timothy comes to Paul and says, Paul, I, I think I should get circumcised, and Paul's like, well, you don't need to, because you're saved, he says, yeah, but culturally, I think it'd be good for me where I'm working that I should be circumcised, and Paul says, good, go for it. Now here's the tension. It's okay to adjust culturally things that we do as long as our steady line is the gospel and the DNA doesn't change inside there. And Paul understands this. And Peter understood this as well. Peter in Acts chapter 10, we don't have time to get, dive into the text, but in Acts chapter 10, Jesus comes up to Peter and says to him, I'm gonna give you a vision, he gives him a vision, he sees all these animals, you know, uh, lamb and, and cows and weird shellfish and sharks and he says, hey, Take and eat all of them. And by the end of the story, the verse that comes up, and I think it's Acts 10, 28, says this, look, everybody is accepted. They're all part of the gospel. That's what I need you to understand. There isn't Jews and Gentiles. There isn't clean and unclean. You're all part of the family. So Peter embraces this message. He goes and has lunch with the Gentiles now, and Paul sees him having lunch with the Gentiles, says, this is fantastic, but some guys come from James's place, and as they come from James's place, they're like, we believe in circumcision. Peter says, whew, I'll step away from having a meal with you, and steps over to the other side. And Paul says, what are you doing? He calls them out. This is the, one of the most controversial face-off discussions about confrontation that you could ever imagine, and people said, surely what Paul should have done and said, Brother Peter, come to my house. Let's have a little chat about this. I don't think it's appropriate. But he said, no, he did it in public, so I chastise him in public. And he does. He says, you should know better. He says, by the time you get to verse 15, listen, we're both Jews. We understand this. We get the whole idea with this, which is the question number three inside your guide here, which says, how do you know who the true people of God are? We understand all of this. We understand the tensions inside here. You are Jews who have been circumcised, but you don't need that. You're Gentiles who've accepted Jesus Christ. That's enough. This is not what it looks like. This is not what it looks like. This together is what it looks like. And he pulls them all together. He says, this is what the church should look like. On Thursday, I flew out to a city and uh, it was uh, just a short visit to go visit uh, uh, some, a pastor, a couple of pastors out somewhere, and I uh, came back early Friday morning, so I only had a few hours uh, in the city, and uh, sitting down with his pastors, and one of the pastors was saying to me, look, you know, I just, I want to be wiser, uh, you know, we were talking about church and structure, and I want to be wiser, and I, I want to do the right thing, and I just want to know that I'm doing what God has said, and I said to them, um, when was the last time that, that God has washed over you? 
you know, where you just felt like the presence of God was real in your life. And they were, they were perplexed about that, and one of them in particular was perplexed about that, and it's like, yeah, I, I've done that before, and I've had those moments. He said, yeah, but when was the last time where you just felt to yourself, hey, God, you're, you're so real. You're, t- you're, you're palpable. I can sense that your presence is here. And I said, you know, when you, when you preach on Sabbath morning and when you open your Bible study up, you've got a glass. And if you have to, like, go right down to the bottom and say, I don't know what I'm going to say, and you, you're begging, you're not really preaching from the overflow of what God has done in your life. You have to have your glass filled all the time. It has to be flowing over all the time. And if you start to do that, you start to see people differently. You learn what wisdom is by being in Christ. You don't become wise by just studying the right seven-step process of conflict management. You become wise by actually trying to be a follower of Christ. And here's the dilemma that I face as as one of the pastors in this church, and we've talked about this, I myself and the others as well, and, and we worry about our community here, you, our family. If I said to you today, I want you to open your Bibles up, not your Bible, just the Bible in the pew, and as you open the Bible up, I want you to tell me the story of salvation, how you know that you are saved. You might go to John 3.16. A couple of you I know would actually quote Greek to me, and I'd have to look that up. (laughs) But I bet a ton of you wouldn't know where to go. You may be able to pull one verse, but you'd never be able to pull a thread. You'd never be able to pull a story of an articulation of this is who Christ is to me. And that's on us as pastors and leaders and elders here in this church that we have got to find a way to help you to know the story inside the Word of God. So that you are able, because I'm not asking you to make other people Adventists, right? I'm asking you to share Jesus with other people. And when they know Jesus, you know which tribe they should go to. It's Adventism. Because Adventism is phenomenal. It is. But they have to discover the DNA of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul was saying. You can be so diverse and so different, but you better have this gospel clear that it's only by Jesus that you are saved. You can't do anything else, but it's by Jesus. But you need to know where that is in the Word of God. So, take out your worship guides. You have a connect card. I want you to think about it real hard and take the pen. You can put it inside the watering can there or on the offering plates or in the offering altars that as you leave the church today before you go to Bible study class and think about. I, if you want to actually learn more how to actually unpack the Bible, put your name down, tell, them, tell me that what you want to do. If you want to do it in a group, we're going to set you up with a, a good group, a life group. We will not put you with a group that freaks you out because there are people here that you don't want to hang out with, believe me. What? Everybody's lovely. No, they're lovely in Jesus. <laughs> there are brothers and sisters in Jesus, but boy, are they acidic when you talk to them without Christ. So, <laughs> we will put you together in community because in community you can learn. And I'm challenging you, don't let another week go by. Don't let another day go by where you think to yourself, I'm going to learn about God some other time. We need to be people that actually see Jesus inside the scriptures. And that is a privilege that I, myself, and the other pastors get to spend a lot of our days. I get to, <laughs> you pay me so that I can actually study the Word of God. It's the best job for me in the world, all right? I get to study every day. You have to go do all sorts of other things in life. I actually get hours and hours of privileged time. And I want to take that privilege and that special 
blessing that I have and translate it for you so it makes it easy for you to be able to discover God as well.